Good evening, everybody. I'm Pastor Jim. I want to uh, add my welcome, especially to our guest tonight. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And I also want to add my uh, thank you to our veterans and our active duty military members. My job, and it's a privilege, is to introduce uh, Stu Weber tonight. So Dr. Stu Weber graduated from Wheaton College, and Stu holds advanced degrees from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. Stu was a U.S. Army Special Forces veteran. He was awarded three bronze stars as a Green Beret in Vietnam. And uh, it was there in the trauma and uncertainty of war that Stu committed himself to a lifetime of vocational ministry for Jesus Christ. He's a pastor who loves his family, his country, and the Church of Jesus Christ. Thirty-nine years ago, Stu and Linda joined a small group of friends down in the Portland area, including uh, our friend Randy Alcorn. We're studying his book for the Happiness Series right now. Uh, Stu and Randy and some other friends founded Good Shepherd Community Church, which is one of Oregon's larger church families at this time. Stu served there as the senior pastor for 32 years, and he's now the pastor emeritus there. Together, Stu and Linda have spoken in many places around our country, family life, marriage, and parenting conferences, and Stu's spoken for Promise Keepers and Men at the Cross, Iron Sharpens Iron, and OCF uh, events. Stu is a best-selling author of uh, several awarded books. His most recent book is called The Warrior Soul, and uh, it looks like this. There's a table of them down uh, at the in the lower foyer right by the uh, entry doors, and uh, we're making them available to you tonight. I think you'll, you'll want to pick one up and read it and maybe get one for a friend. They're just $12. You can get one on your way out tonight and uh, in, enjoy that. So Stu and Linda live just outside of Portland, Oregon. Uh, high school sweethearts, they've been married for 50 years. They have three grown sons, and they're now greatly enjoying grandparenting. They have, at this point, 10 grandchildren so far. Stu's a Washingtonian originally. He grew up in Cleelum and then graduated from high school in Yakima. And uh, uh, we sort of know each other from a distance over the years. Um, Randy and I were good friends of Multnomah Tennis Partners, and it was Randy and Stu that started Good Shepherd. Uh, but I've listened to his sermons and read his books over the years. We've used Stu's books in our men's leadership class here. And uh, one of the most impactful th- ways, though, that the Stu has impacted my life was back when I was a a Multnomah student, so a little over 40 years ago, he spoke at a student retreat down on the Oregon coast, and uh, uh, God used that to greatly encourage me and and, uh, part of the journey to considering ministry in my own life. Our our daughter has attended his church. Uh, Jackie's parents and other family members are are part of Good Shepherd, so uh, in many ways, uh, Stu and and his church down there have uh, been very important in our own lives, so want to thank you, Stu, and welcome you on up here. Let's give Stu a very warm welcome to Lake City. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. <clears throat> I'm old now, which means I have permission to sit down. This time of the day, my back leaves and goes somewhere, and I'm not sure where. Uh, but they're going to cut on it again here before too long. We'll see if we can't get it fixed finally. I, uh, I love being with you. I, uh, I feel very much at home here, reminded very much at home. Uh, Clay Ellum is only 90 miles to the east. Am I oriented right? Is that east? Okay, thank you. 
I had a pastor growing up in Yakima that didn't matter how long he'd been at the church, he still pointed the opposite direction from the same pulpit with ever, which never moved. Um, if you'll pardon me, I'm going to reminisce for a moment because I feel like I'm at home. Is that okay? Um, Clayalum, little tiny coal mining town. Uh, my dad was a coal miner, my grandpa was a coal miner, and when the uh, diesel engines came in in the middle 50s, the coal mines went down, and uh, the number nine shaft that my dad and grandpa frequented is now the centerpiece of uh, Suncadia, which all the locals giggle about because it's a swamp. Uh, but it's now the most valuable property in the little town. Uh, we moved to Yakima in the uh, middle 50s, when I was a boy of about eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. And uh, while playing ball in high school, I'd heard that there were a group of uh, uh, eighth grade girls playing softball at a local field. And so me and some of the cronies went over there to watch the softball game. And the third baseman was unbelievable. Uh, she had a peg from third to first that never went like this. It went pow into the mitt like that. And I said, I would really like to spend my life with a woman like that. And because uh, I thought life was about playing ball. I didn't know any more than that. And uh, I saw her a weekend or two later in a vacation Bible school as we were kids. And uh, uh, she was incredibly cute at close range like that. And uh, so we chased each other for six years and finally got married and have been married for 50, which is a miracle and fits in with the theme of our evening tonight that life is a battle. Are you with me? Uh, yeah, even the good parts. Uh, I love that woman like no other, of course, and uh, that doesn't mean that it's always been smooth. Um, we have lots of, as we say, water under our marital bridge, and most of it is deep or fast, uh, or both. And uh, as I told the guys this morning, we're both Germans, we're both firstborns, we're both aggressive in personality, and uh, so we have had our issues over the years and we uh, taught on the family life speaker team on the theory that if we could be meaningfully married anybody could um, that's really the truth uh, my parents were married we, we buried my father in the little coal miner cemetery this last uh, february here in clay Ellum. and uh, my parents had been married for 74 and a half years when dad passed away a long time uh, and at their 70th anniversary, some of the church folks said, uh, well, Byron, what's the secret to a long marriage like that? And he said, well, you know, he said, um, we've only had one fight. Uh, now, it's still going on, <laughs> but it looks like it's going to work out. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Uh, I had the finest father in the world, and uh, my mother was the spitfire that I got whatever spitfire I might have from. I love her dearly. She's 94 uh, in January and still with us and still got her sense of humor and still addressing me as her son. I walked into her room here a couple of weeks ago and she said, buddy, you need to lose weight. <laughs> First words, once a mom, always a mom. Um, as uh, Jim said, God gave us three sons, none of whom we deserve and all of whom are better men than me. And uh, uh, we love those 10 grandchildren, and now each one of my sons has a little girl, and so I finally learned what it's like. Guys would always tell me, you know, if you don't have a little girl, you just don't know what you're missing. And I said, well, obviously, God doesn't want me to know, or he would have given me one. I mean, I was fighting it off. And now I know, and I realize what they were saying. 
I love Lizzie like nobody in the world. And when she takes my hand and we walk down the little sidewalk, I'm, I'm a man again, you know? Lots to protect. Life is a battle. This is Veterans Day. And in keeping with that theme, we're just gonna try to recognize the fact tonight that every one of us here is a warrior. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, we're all in a fight. Sometimes that battle is as simple as a paper cut at the office, ouch. Sometimes that battle is as complex as a IED on a road in Afghanistan. And all human pain and all human disappointment and all human hurt, all of it can be traced ultimately to the spiritual battle and to the spiritual enemy, the adversary of our souls, Satan. This war that we're a part of is, um, it's absolutely cosmic in its scope. The whole universe is at war. Ever since the evil one fell from the side of the Father, the universe has been at war. And this war is very global on this planet in particular. It's global in its impact all over the planet. Sometimes absolutely horrible expressions, such as the beheading of people. And sometimes simple distractions like a squabble in the marriage at home. Or if you're like me, uh, traffic presents a problem. Uh, my favorite word, the only cuss word, quote unquote, I ever heard my dad say was fathead. So that became my mantra, and I would say it like it was a cuss word. And uh, the other day I got the giggles because uh, uh, a couple of my grandkids are 16 years old and one of them was driving down the road and a guy cut him off and he turned her over to me and he said, you know, that guy may have been, he was possibly a fathead. <laughs> uh, but you know, whether it's on the freeway and somebody's tailgating you, and the battle takes place inside the car and inside the chest, and your wife disappears under the dashboard like mine used to at times, or whether it's outside with the guy that's doing what he's doing behind you, everything is a test and a battle and a war. The problem is, you and I as Christians live like we're going to Disneyland, uh, and of course one day we will be in heaven with our Lord, but this world is not Disneyland, and we are at war, and the the less we're alert to that, the more likely we are to gather scars. Uh, it's just that way. You know the name John Piper? Uh, John was a classmate of mine at Wheaton. He was smarter than all the rest of us put together, and he still is. was always in the library, and he gets it. Listen to what he said here. I use the phrase wartime lifestyle or wartime mindset. It tells me there's a war going on between Christ and Satan, between belief and unbelief, it tells me there are weapons to be funded and used. So I hope when you see in the bulletin, this is where we at this month and this is where our goals are, I hope you see you're financing a war and you're protecting your children and you're protecting your family and you're protecting your culture. We need a wartime mindset, weapons to be funded and used. And it tells me that the stakes of this conflict are higher than any other war in history. They're eternal and infinite. We're at war. We're not just sitting here biding time until we go to the heavenly church camp. We're at war. It's a real deal. Piper says, I need to hear this message again and again. Now, if John Piper needs to hear it again and again, for goodness sakes, how about the rest of us guys? Huh? 
I drift into a peace mindset, peacetime mindset all the time, as certainly as the rain falls down. I'm wired by nature to love all of the same toys that the world loves, and I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call Earth home, and before you know it, I begin to forget the war, and I don't think about much about people perishing, and I, I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace, and I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness, and I thank God for those who have forced me again and again and again toward a wartime mindset. I need this warning every day. We're in a war. So... May I just say this, physical war, all physical combat, it's just a physical metaphor for the reality of what happens in our spiritual world. Did I kind of reverberate there? Uh, this, the physical wars that we know about are just metaphors for the spiritual wars that are 24 and 7 all the time. One indication of that here in the auditorium is that you too, like we at Good Shepherd, place your drummer behind bulletproof glass. You know? Yeah. Uh, some of you like it, some of you don't like it. It's part of the battle, okay? It's just the way it is. And we need to learn to lock arms as believers in this battle so we can win. So what I want to do is look at a couple of things here that kind of draw that together. When I had the privilege of visiting the troops in Afghanistan several times in the last few years, uh, one of the highlights for me was uh, Major General Ben Frakely, who was the CG of the 10th Mountain Division, and he was welcoming some of his troops into, into country for the first time. And he said, I need three things from every one of you. I need you physically fit. We're fighting sometimes at 10,000 feet in snow. You need legs and you need lungs. Stay fit. And I need you to be tactically fit because those people sitting beside you are dependent upon you. You are fellow soldiers. You must be big enough to carry the person next to you when they get hit. You need to be involved, tactically fit. You need to know what you're doing on the battlefield. And thirdly, and this was a shocker to many of his guys, he said, I need you spiritually fit. Because all warfare is won ultimately in the chest of the soldier. That's a really good saying. Here's General George C. Marshall. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, who he is. And if you don't learn about him in school, it's because we don't teach anything in school anymore. George Marshall was one of the more intelligent men of the mid-20th century. Uh, he was the uh, five-star general that put Eisenhower in his place in World War II, chief of staff of the Army, became Secretary of State thereafter, rebuilt Europe with the Marshall Plan after the war, a genius, a soldier of soldiers. And here's what he said. The soldier's heart, the soldier's spirit, the soldier's soul are everything. Now, either he meant that or he was speaking hyperbolically. I believe he meant that. The soldier's heart, soul, and spirit are everything. You would think it would be his M1 Garand in those days, but not according to General Marshall, who knew more about war than anybody. It's the soldier's heart, soul, and spirit that are everything in this battle. And if that's true in physical combat, like he was leading in World War II, how much more is that true in the world where you and I move as a formation and hold on to each other? That's the nature of the warfare we're in. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's the great brain researcher, uh, I think it was the UCLA Medical School for a while, he wrote a book called Brain Lock, and he was asked one time, what is it gonna take for our schizophrenic, para, uh, parapsychotic, whatever, I've forgotten the term, what's it gonna take for us to grow back again to making sense as a people? And what Jeffrey Schwartz says is it's gonna take, take reconnection with 3,500-year-old wisdom. 
he was referring to the scriptures. I understand he has since come to Christ. I don't know that for sure, but I pray that's so. 3,500-year-old wisdom. What we're going to do is we're going to look tonight. You're going to turn to the book of Joshua, if you would, and we're going to look at a 3,500-year-old after-action report from the 14th chapter of the book of Joshua, and we're going to come up with some principles to help us in this spiritual war. Picture now these two old boys. They're sitting around the campfire. This is the way I picture them. Joshua and Caleb, they've been together for a half century. They've been soldiering for a long time. They've taken the people through the wilderness. They're, they're in the middle of, of taking conquest, conquering the land. And they've divided the land. They've taken the north and they've taken the south. And those two campaigns are done. And all that remains are the highlands, the, the hill country, the most difficult objectives in their war. And they're about to launch an offensive into that area. And I picture the two old soldiers sitting together around the campfire the night before they cross the line of departure. And here in Joshua 14, we'll start at verse 6. It says, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, if I, if I knew Caleb when I was having sons, like I know Caleb now, I would have a son named Caleb. I've fallen in love with this guy who was the dog soldier. Uh, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, Joshua, You, basically, do you remember the two old soldiers, they're at the end of their life. They're, they're at bookends. They're doing some reminiscing. And they not only reminisce, they remember. And you'll see history coming up over and over and over again in this conversation. Let that be something we get a hold of. We are dead in this war without history. History is the explanation of everything that's current. So he says, you remember the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me. There's another little phrase. This is historical narrative, so you interpret it a little differently, exegetically, than you would New Testament passages necessarily. And when I see in that little phrase, you and me, I see the hyper camaraderie that occurs between two soldiers that have faced the ultimates of life and death together for a long time. These guys are what they call today battle buddies. It sounds a little innocent. It's not innocent at all. These are the guys who've seen everything together. You and me. So we've got, we've got a sense of history. We've got a sense of camaraderie. He says, he spoke to you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. You remember the first Special Forces A-Team? There were 12 of them that went on a long-range recon into the land of promise to measure the cities, to measure the military readiness, to, to scout, if you will, to gather intelligence for the Israeli forces that would be moving in. And uh, in the 12-man the team, there were 10 who gave the majority report who panicked out. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who gave the minority report that said, we can do this. I brought word back to him, Moses, as it was in my heart. As it was in, you can hear General Marshall a little bit there. It's the soldier's heart that's everything. We're going to look at that phrase if we have time. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me, they made the heart of the people melt with fear. Fear is contagious. Courage is, con is contagious. You decide what you want to contribute to the cause you're a part of, but fear will defeat you. If, you're, if you let yourself fall victim to it. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Followed fully. Very potent verb we'll look at 
if we have time. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land in which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, notice all the references to history, you know. Now behold, uh, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. Don't ever forget what he spoke. The Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time the Lord spoke that word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I am still as strong as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war. I don't think he's referring to his bench press. But I do think he's referring to what was in his heart. Because that's what carries the day for soldiers. It's what men believe that make the difference. In fact, Marshall said that. I've got a quote of his somewhere in here. This is Marshall again. World War II. We're building our morale not on supreme confidence in our ability to conquer. Not on reliance of things of steel. Not on reliance of the excellence of guns. But on things far more potent. We're building it on belief. For it's what men believe that make them invincible. That's a very real statement. And so he's saying, remember those, I'm 85 years old and I'm just as fit for combat today as I was then in all the areas that matter, such as my heart and soul. Can you imagine? Now, I've seen some 85-year-olds that can move about pretty good. This guy was probably exceptionally fit, but he's referring to his spirit, to his soul, to his heart, I believe. So then, give me the hill country. Give me the toughest objectives. Give me the high ground to take. I love it. Give me the hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. Remember, remember, remember. For you heard on that day that the Anakim, the sons of Anak, were there with great fortified cities. And I love this statement. This is a, a soldier's statement, if ever there was one. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, as he's spoken. No guarantees I'm a soldier. Might leave my carcass on the battleground, but I might not. Uh, I might have victory, should the Lord choose to give it to me, you see. Uh, there's some strong things there for us. I want to start with that first, that second little phrase, or third one there. At the, it's at the top right-hand column in my Bible. That's how you find things in my Bible. Uh, as it was in my heart, that's a statement of absolute power when it comes to battle, whether it's physical or spiritual. It's the guys with heart that take the highest ground. It's the guys with heart. And guys is a neuter term for me, okay? It's not male or female. We're just all of us soldiers, okay? It's always an important disclaimer for me to make. So, it's the heart, it's the soul, it's the spirit. And what needs to be in there is what I call a sense of transcendent cause. Do you have a sense of transcendent cause? Are you aware all the time of why you're alive? Do you have a purpose, a mission, a direction? My father, when he was 32, grasped his transcendent cause. He realized the only reason he was alive was to serve Christ. And his life changed from a simple coal miner in a little dirt town to a guy who was driven with the purpose of following Jesus Christ. And it changed all of our lives. My mother did not know the Lord, and frankly, as she would say, I didn't want anything to do with the church-going crowd. They were the biggest gossips in town. I didn't want to be there. And so she stayed away, and my dear dad followed his Lord. 
And I was the only one that would go with him. My sister was too young, my brother wasn't born, and I went to church with dad everywhere we could. He went everywhere in the little town of Yakima. We moved there when he was about 32. And he took this Bible and he said, this is God's word. We're looking for a church that recognizes it as such, that preaches it as such. It says, this is what God's word says, this is what it means, and this is what we do about it. And we went to churches all over what to us was the huge metropolitan area of Yakima, Washington. I got in fights in church because it was a different church every week. I didn't know anybody and somebody said something smart and, and uh, the coal mining German came out. That was my introduction to church. And you know, unfortunately, if we're not careful, it's not too different when we get older. Am I right? We're always squabbling with each other, but boy, we gotta stick together and we gotta tease each other for the squabble, but not get in the big deals, you know? We don't really care about the carpet color, do we? No, it doesn't really matter. We care about the deity of Christ, you know, we care about the physical resurrection. We care about the nature of salvation. But all the other stuff is really relatively small. We don't have a whole lot to divide over, you know. So I don't know where that came from, but it's, there it is for me for free. Um, I, I remember uh, in Cleelum growing up there, walking down 3rd Street. We only had three streets. 3rd Street was the one against the hill. And I would walk down 3rd Street with my dad. And there were all the names on the mailboxes, the greatest little town in the world. Most of those families are not there so much anymore, but many of the, many are. And I, I, my friends were names like uh, Imani and uh, Capoletti and Aragoni and Gidroni. And uh, that was the Italian section of coal miners. And then there was the Slavic and Slovenian sections and Croat sections. And there was the Gulabiks and the Klobukars and the Osmanoviches and Katalaniches and and Batorix and all those people. And I loved those names. I, our whole town needed to buy a vowel, you know what I mean, in Cleella? <laughs> and then down on the end of Third Street where Dad and I would walk was this big black memorial uh, to the soldiers, who, the, all the people from Cleella that had gone in World War II. And there, below the line, there was a line and there were a whole bunch more names below the line than were above it. And there below the line were my dad's name and his brother's names and all that. But above the line were the guys who didn't come home. And my dad, who loved history, said, we'll never forget those guys. We can walk down Third Street anytime we want because those guys gave their lives for us. The Prokopovich brothers, there were only two Prokopovich brothers, and they gave their lives, one on June 6, 1944, and one in November of 44 with the 6th Ranger Battalion in the Pacific Theater and they're buried on either side of their parents. But about 40 feet from their graves and about 150 feet from dad's grave is a grave that's real special to us. It was one of dad's high school buddies. His name was Monroe. Uh, Doug Monroe was the drum major of the little, uh, what did they call it, the little drum and bugle corps. In 1937, they won the national championship. Thank you, Cleelum. Dad was the bass drummer and uh, uh, Doug's grave is right there in the, uh, the one side of the cemetery where they've moved that big black monument up, or they've redone it, and his name is above the line. I was always awed by his name because if you turned and looked at his grave, and you should do that, it's a matter of history. His grave has the unmistakable emblem of the Congressional Medal of Honor on it. Still to this day, the only member of the U.S. Coast Guard to have the Medal of Honor. It was 20, September 27th, 1942, Guadalcanal. He was landing a battalion of Marines with his Higgins boats. 
They got in trouble on the beach. They called for an extraction. They called for volunteers to go get them. Doug said, I'll take. My guys and I will go. And Doug put his little Higgins boat between the Japanese guns on the heights and the beach where they were trying to extract the Marines. And in the process, the odds to which he'd exposed himself, they had little twin 30 calibers they were trying to suppress the firepower. But at one point, uh, a strip of bullets came across the water and Doug took a 30 caliber bullet in the back of his skull. And his last words to his mate on the ship, in his arms and on the ship, the Higgins boat, his last words were, did we get them all off? Did we get them? He didn't cry for mom. His mother, by the way, enlisted in the Coast Guard after his death and became the head of the Spars, the women's Coast Guard unit. That was a family that had a sense of transcendent cause. Doug's last words were not, oh please, or oh anything. It was, did we accomplish our mission? See, that's transcendent cause. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's have we lived and accomplished a purpose. My dad was so driven by his love for Christ that my picture of my father is sitting at the dining room table with his Bible open and re reference books everywhere, including on the floor, while he's studying the Bible. And he was a coal miner and then moved all the way up to the Yakima City Fire Department. Everybody thought he was a retired pastor. They called him Solomon at our little grade school at our church. They would bring him into the classes to answer any questions about the Bible they needed. Dad was always living under that transcendent cause, you see. Gates of Fire, all soldiers should read it. It's a book about the Peloponnesian, or about uh, the fall of, uh, of the gates at Thermopylae, the, the thermal gates, the hot springs there, when uh, the king of Persia, Xerxes, wiped out the 300, not the ones in the movie, uh, but the actual 300 guys who sacrificed their lives for their people. Well, that book, Gates of Fire, is really a magnificent historical novel. And in the process of working with that historical novel, I was reading it through, and I came to a place, the Spartan military system had every 14-year-old boy was linked with a mentor who was already a warrior because they knew war was all around them. And so all the 14-year-old boys were mentored by senior soldiers, and they had little training exercises. And on this particular day that this conversation take place, took place, one of the 14-year-olds had been killed. And so for the first time, young Alexandras saw death. 14 years old, and he saw a friend die in a training accident. And so his mentor, Diakonis, sat down with him at the end of the day, and they were evaluating what had happened and what was that like and what did it feel like and how do you relate to it. And kind of the summary conversation from Diakonis to Alexandros was this. Diakonis said, Alexandros, if I thought this body, this life was mine, I could never advance a single pace into the face of the enemy. But it's not mine. It belongs to my bride and to my children, and to our country, and to generations yet unborn. That's a sense of transcendent cause. It's larger than you. Doug had it. Diakonis had it. That's what we need to pat. My dad had it in spades. He had a library that would put most pastors to shame. And he studied and studied and studied. And he had been retired from the fire department when he died for almost 50 years. He was retired twice as long as he worked. And there were firemen who came to his funeral in Portland because they'd heard Pop had passed away. And one of them was his roommate at Station 3. 
and he told me of a conversation my dad had never mentioned to me. He said, we'd just gone to bed, we'd turned out the lights, and my dad, who is also German, said in the dark, I am a sinner. Now, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about over here, thinks maybe he's hallucinating. I don't know. Uh, I am a sinner. What do you mean, by? He said, there's a guy in this fire department I absolutely hate, and that's wrong. And I'm a sinner. And I would be dead forever if I wasn't saved by Jesus Christ. Um, Dad's life changed. Transcendent cause. There were some guys ahead of us a few years. Uh, we call them the founding fathers. They had a, a transcendent cause, and they gave everything to it. We hold these truths to be self-evident which is Thomas Jefferson's way, basically, of saying any stoop can get this, okay? These truths are self-evident. We're created. We're created equal. We're created equal. Equal. We're the same. Not the same, but equal. And, uh, and we draw our life and our breath from our Creator, and we are endowed by Him with certain unalienable rights that don't originate with human government. Things like life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which in their culture meant basically being able to have a piece of ground and feed your family from it and not have somebody tell you that everything on that piece of ground belonged to the king. That was a transcendent cause, and they gave their lives, and they gave their fortunes, and they gave their homes. And here you and I sit on their shoulders, and I wonder how many people in our room could name ten of them or five or let, let alone know what they thought and said and wrote. We need to be alert to that, and that takes us to the second point. Not only as it was in my heart, not only a sense of transcendent cause that drives you 24 and 7, but a sense of history. If we forget history, we are dead people. There's a, a, a linkage to the past that allows us to know where we've been so we can understand where we are and where we're headed. The Founding Fathers called it a frequent recurrence to the past, a frequent recurrence to fundamentals, moral touchstones. It's a, it's a spiritual compass linked to your past. I say it this way, nurtured memories, nurtured memories shape future destinies. Nurtured memories. You pick these memories out of your past and you nurture them. And you take these memories out of your past and you forget them. They will hold you back. My wife was raised by an individual who was not a man. Her father was anything but a man. And he not only didn't provide for the family, but he abused my wife in every way a male can abuse a female. She should be the most blubbering statistic on the face of the earth, and she's not. Because that portion of her life she has dealt with, she's owned it, she understands it, and she will not let it destroy her. And she loves me which tells you she is one tough hombre, you know? But she's not a basket case because she's chosen to move those memories to the shelf and she's nurtured other memories. She's nurtured memories of her mother who is still alive at 91 today. And she and her sister, Juju, who by the way is the great receiver for USC tonight against the Huskies. And here I'm still talking. Yeah. Uh, but her sister, Juju, Judy, her little granddaughter calls her Juju, Aunt Juju. They're, they're right now meeting with the, the brother and, and two sisters are meeting to 
collaborate on how they take care of mom in the rest of her days. She's failing rapidly now. And by the way, out of that disastrous home where a mother was faithful to God and raised kids on borrowed milk from the next door neighbors who had a cow, on free apples that fell off the tree in the orchard where they lived, in a migrant labor camp uh, with no amenities at all, in about 500 square feet, maybe, of a shack. Um, that mother raised three kids, two girls and a boy. The boy's a pastor today, and both girls are married to pastors. Little June changed her world, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is if we can have this sense of transcendent cause and we can nurture the right memories, then we can almost guarantee a future destiny down here of a spiritual legacy. It's very important. Do you remember The Lion King? How many of you have seen The Lion King? It's okay. It's a movie, but it's all right. You know, although there's a lot of new age baloney in it. But the basic theme is really right on. Here's this beautiful, gorgeous kingdom, and when it's ruled by the great lion, all is well and all is right. But a usurper manages to get him killed and takes the, the rightful heir and convinces him that the death of his father was his fault. And so the rightful heir wanders in a wilderness basically of his own making but by depression. And he wanders around aimless and without purpose. And the kingdom loses all of its vitality and becomes dark. And then he finally remembers who he is. You remember at the pool of, of reflection? The whole film turns on him looking into that water and seeing the reflections from the stars, and in his mind's eye, he hears the voices of the fathers saying, remember who you are. That's my mother-in-law and my wife. Remember who you are. You're not a piece of junk. Even though you were abused and misused, you're not a piece of junk. You are a trophy of grace. It's so important that we remember individually our personal histories, I look back at mine, Vietnam changed everything for me. I had been raised in a Christian home. I went away to college through no fault of the college or the home. I wandered into the 60s of intellectual wandering and doubting and leaving. I met with the Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society head who was the church I grew up in. He was like the Pope. And uh, he not only wasn't able to help me, but he actually confessed to some of the same doubts. And I'm thinking, holy cow, if the Pope has these doubts, this thing really is a fake, you know? And so I left. My theology tells me I didn't really leave. I thought I was big enough to leave. But I didn't have anything to do with church. My favorite picture of my wife is taken from some barracks in Germany. And she's on, I'm on the fourth floor, and she's going off to teach little kids in the army chapel about Jesus. And I don't have anything to do with it. And for about six years of wilderness there, I was not uh, interested in anything spiritual. But when you come up against life and death, it's time to evaluate. And it never occurred to me that I would die. And when I faced the prospect, it actually turned my soul toward all of those childhood things that had been poured into me. And I decided I'm going to go to seminary so I can put this together, you see. Uh, I mean, I was taught all the little Bible school stories, like you were probably taught. I mean, I had the flannel graph, little purple-haired lady with flannel graph, and, uh, and, and David, only a boy named David, remember that? Uh, only a little sling. I knew that part of the story, but I never knew. That little purple-haired lady never told us that he cut the head off of that giant and drug it up to the king and threw it at his feet. That was pretty cool, I thought, you know? Uh, 
and it would have grabbed all the little boys' attention, you know what I mean? Uh, but I, I didn't know how all these stories fit together, and I was going to go to one year of seminary. It was the most spiritually revolutionary year of my life, where this thing, this magnificent library, went ka-chunk, 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 and it all fit together. Now, for that first year, I thought I was going to be the poor sap that found the error in Jeremiah, and the whole house of cards would come falling apart. Ain't going to happen, but I didn't know that then because I was so insecure in my faith. But the book and the history and the nature will change your life. You have to remember the past. It keeps you from drifting. And this is our past. This is our history. You know, the Navy, uh, on an aircraft carrier, you know how many anchors those things have? I don't know much about the Navy, okay? Um, I was going to tell a joke, but I'm not going to tell the joke, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, Intra-service rivalry, you know? but. Uh, the Navy aircraft carriers, they have two anchors. Each one weighs 60,000 pounds, and each one is connected to the ship by a thousand-foot chain, each link, each link of which is 365 pounds. And they have one purpose. Even with all the technology, the most powerful weapon in the world, a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, the anchor still serves one purpose, keep the thing from drifting. Because if the USS Reagan drifts through San Diego Harbor, everybody pays a price, you know? And that, that's the anchor of our life is history. We need to know who we are. You ever watch Jaywalking or Waters World or some of those things where they're asking guys in the street? Golly, no wonder we're in trouble. We don't even know yesterday, let alone what's happened in our past. He asks, uh, what did uh, General Eisenhower do after the war? Um... Oh, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. He made a movie. He made a movie, didn't he? Gee whiz. We got to... So I hope your grandkids study history. And when they have to read a book for class, say, come on over here and check out Dad's library or Pop's library and look through here. You're looking for historical fiction? Here's this section. You're looking for reality? Here's this section. You're looking for theology? Here's this section. Uh, we got to remember history. I'm going to quit with one more point. Um... And that's, um, I'll just say this, make it two more points, but real quick, okay? Um, another issue, we've got transcendent cause, we've got a memory of history and identity, who we are, and then we develop a personal intensity around that. And that personal intensity is what drives us. I just love the reality of this old soldier who says, I'm just as good today as I was then. Give me the hill country. You know, there's an intensity there. I have a lot of friends that I just love from the military, and, and uh, one of them, my, one of my closest friends today, is a guy who was uh, involved in the founding of Delta Force. And he, was, he took the first um, uh, selection and assessment course of 40 days as they were founding Delta Force, saying, all I can guarantee is a body bag and a medal, nothing else, and nobody's ever gonna know about your missions. And the, the last thing of this 40-day selection and assessment was a 40-mile cross-country, compass map, dead reckoning, up hills, down hills, through creeks, across ponds, carrying a 65-pound pack, a rifle, and wearing a steel pot. And my friend did those 40 miles. Now think about this. You're going to think I'm a liar. He did those 40 miles in 11 hours and 37 minutes. That's marathon pace with no course laid out, 
and no pavement to run on and a jungle to get through and mountains to climb. And I said, well, how often did you take a breather? Oh, I never took a breather. Well, how often did you walk? Are you kidding me? I never walked. He never stopped jogging, running for 40 miles up hills and down hills with a pack on his back. And it was going well. And he got to the end of the course and he, he thought, uh-oh, there's no truck. In the army at the end of these land nav courses, there's a truck. There's no truck. And he's now in a snowstorm and a whiteout. And his life theme is the power of a 10-second prayer. He sat down and he said, Lord, until now it looked like you wanted me in this unit, but I don't know where I am. You're going to have to direct my steps. 100 yards later, he walked right into the truck, which you couldn't see 10 yards in the snow. Intensity, intensity, drive, go, 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 don't quit, don't sit down, don't stop. That's here in this passage, a personal intensity. That comes from that little word, followed fully. Nothing affects my focus. I follow fully. It became a euphemism for hunting, for tracking. I see every leaf. I see every drop of blood. I see every twig. I see, I notice everything. Nothing distracts me. I am personally intense about my mission. I have another friend who, who has, I told the guys this morning, he has the bronze star with V device. He has the silver star. He has the distinguished service cross and the medal of honor. He owns the four highest awards for valor in combat as a Green Beret medic. And he was one intense hombre. Now, he didn't know Jesus yet, and he, studied, he suffered a little bit from PTSD, and he was a medic, SF medic, and they made these physician's assistance programs, basically for trauma, people experienced with trauma. And so he applied to the one at Dartmouth, and he'd finished all the application, and he was going into uh, the final interview. The interview seemed to go well, and the guy asked him when the interview was over, let me ask you one more question. Why would you want to go into medicine having killed all those people? It was the wrong question to ask. The PTSD took over, and Gary says, the next thing I remember is seeing his shoes coming across his desk, knocking his books on the floor, and I came to with my knee in his throat on the floor. That's what you call personal intensity. A little bit out of order there, for sure, but it was that same intensity in combat that kept him alive in the middle of everything with all that going on. So you've got a transcendent cause, You've got a sense of history and identity, personally, familially, nationally, theologically, and you've got this personal intensity, and then you get a battle buddy, okay? I'm going to close with this one. Uh, in that little phrase, you and me, you and me, you and me, Joshua Caleb, they didn't even have to say words to each other. They had been in the worst of circumstances together, and they had carried each other. They were actual fellow soldiers which Paul calls us the highest compliment he could call one of his disciples was that he was a fellow soldier. They walked together. Did you know that God never goes anywhere without his two best friends? It's the Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the original small group. <laughs> they stick together. They stick to, and they, they carry each other. I have another friend who was later a commander of Delta Force who's... Uh, Lifetime best bench press was 507 pounds. The NFL tackles may do 450. He's 507. His, uh, he had to get a different uniform. They had to cut them and put special sleeves on because his arms were bigger than my legs. 
And I ask him, he's also a weapons and knives man. At his retirement as a general officer, there were uh, almost 40, several dozen other generals came to his retirement at Fort Bragg. People don't do that. That's some kind of a record. He was a, he was a soldier's general. He was a fighting general. He was a knives and weapons man. And the last guests of honor that they introduced, instead they went through all those generals, and then the, the, the uh, MC of the event said, and last and not least, in this particular general, retiring general's mind, will all of the gun dealers and knife manufacturers please stand up? Because <laughs> he kept them in business. I mean, he was that kind of a soldier. He escorted Tommy Franks and Mrs. Franks into Afghanistan, and Tommy and, and Mrs. Franks went into this big tent where all the Afghan elders meet. It's dark, it's smoke-filled, the men have black eyes, they have things on their head. It's scary for Mrs. Franks in particular. And she says to Gary, she leans over and she says, do you have any weapons with you? He goes, All, he's an Ivan weapon man. Why do I tell you that? Because of what I'm going to say now. I asked him, when you know you're going to see the elephant, when you know it's coming back at you, you're going to see, you're going to see a firefight, what do you want with you at the ready? And I was thinking, you know, his souped up M4, his wife gives him a different handgun every birthday so that he's never more, his life has been threatened so many times because of drug lords that he's thrown in and finished off. And, and uh, so she's a good army wife. Uh, I'm thinking he maybe wants his Kimber 45 or maybe it's that M4, or maybe it's this or that. I said, what do you want with you more than any other thing? He got real sober. His eyes sweated a little bit and he said, I want someone big enough to carry me when I get hit. Never go into battle alone. And never leave a brother or sister behind on the battlefield. Go after them. As recently as yesterday, one of my friends had to grab one of my other friends and say, don't you dare. He almost went back to the bottle after being sober for a long time. Because it was Veterans Day and he saw his bunker at Quezon on the military channel. And he almost went nuts. And old Mike pulled him out and carried him away, you know. We need each other all the time. You are warriors, every man, woman, boy, girl. And you need those qualities. You need a transcendent cause in here. You need a settled memory of who you are and whose you are. You need a personal intensity that drives you along those tracks. You need the kind of thing that, that the kind of friendship that, um, where you call each other man to man all the time. I call virtually every day my best friend on the planet. We've been buddies for over 40 years and we've drug each other through all kinds of things and held each other in our marriages. And I wouldn't be qualified for the ministry today if it wasn't for those guys, three of them. We need each other. And then one last thing, we need a spirit of optimism. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will take the high ground. No guarantees but always positive, you know? My wife has really been into the television news lately. There was a day when I couldn't get her to watch it. And of course, you know what's been on. And I finally came to the place and said, can't we just turn it off? Let's, let's leave this where it belongs. Do everything humanly responsible that we can and leave it in the hands of the Sovereign One. Perhaps he will be with us and we'll come out of this just fine. Matter of fact, we will, guaranteed. Maybe not on this planet, but in the real world yet to come. Let me close in prayer. 
Father, thank you for meeting us here tonight and giving us time with each other. I love these people. I can see in their eyes and the nodding of their heads and, and the movement of their eyes. I can see that they love you. And we want to live for you. We want to make a difference for you. And we pray, Father, you would help us to develop that uh, sense of transcendent cause with, with a vengeance, Lord, a kind of personal intensity that drives us uh, to the fulfillment of our identity and the conclusion of our history. Thank you, Father, for the optimism we feel because of your finished work on the cross and because of the certain hope we have of standing before you one day and for the desire in each of our hearts to hear, well done, good and faithful warrior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.